this final segment of the monthly market mix gets a bit more technical. While I'll remind you that this is not to be construed as individual financial advice, it is going to be a higher level of education for investors and students of the markets. We're going to start by going back a bit to what I said in the beginning, that in 2023, one of my aims is to help Blacks Academy students and our subscribers to rethink those things that seem to be salient points, things that seem to be generally accepted about the nature of stocks and bonds, capital markets, that really aren't true all the time. And in doing so, one of the highest points of agitation I find is with the 60-40 portfolio and the idea that stocks and bonds are always negatively correlated. In theory, you know, stocks and bonds provide a natural hedge for each other. But theory is not what makes the markets go around. It's why investing and trading, being an operator in the markets is more of an apprenticeship than it is a PhD study. But the theory that holds that stocks and bonds are going to be generally no, uh, negatively correlated gives rise to the popularity of the 60-40 portfolio where you have 60% of your assets in some form of equity. And it could be many different types. I hear a lot of people say, oh, well, my equity portfolio is diversified because I have everything from domestic to foreign to emerging markets, all this other stuff. And the rest is offset by a 40% or near 40% allocation in a basket of, you know, bonds or debt of some sort. But 2022, like many periods in the past, showed that this isn't always a hedge and the severity of what happened in 2022 was opening enough to take this idea a bit forward. If you go back far enough, you'll realize that there are periods of times, sometimes very long periods of times in which stocks and bonds have positive correlation. The most recent one would have been from night period of 1965 to 2000. The reason why I didn't bother people during this period of time, and I've charted this on lots of charts over the years, even from my very beginnings as a, as a trader, just looking at the charts, I saw that bonds traded generally in the same direction as stocks during that period of time. But the direction in that situation was up. Nobody cares when the correlation is positive or negative as long as we're making gains. So as you can see here, over a 95% confidence uh, interval, the correlation isn't necessarily strong, but it is positive. But you can see it from 1950 into 1965, and then from 2000 to 2020, these are periods where there was negative correlation of varying degrees of magnitude, but it is generally established as we think. But if you take the cumulative sum of the 1965 period, 2000, and then the other two periods, they're about the same length. So there is some cyclical behavior here that as you dig deeper, you find that there is some general recipe in the economic cookbook of determining whether the correlation between stocks and bonds is going to be positive or negative. And that's something to take notice with because 
even though your portfolio may be longstanding, you you want to you want it to outlive you. Its usefulness may not be that if in the future the shocks to the system like 2022 are too severe compared to the years in which they have gains. Now, thinking about positive and negative correlation between stocks and bonds is pretty simple. You can break it down to the macroeconomic drivers and then the actual policy drivers and the economies at large. Negative correlation, it makes sense that it's going to be when the risk-free rate at which you're able to borrow or you're really to you know accept a minimum value type investment like a treasury is going to be low. This was very persistent in a deflationary environment that happened from the year from the dot-com era, from 2000 until where we were, we were pretty much deflationary. Lower rates, stimulus to the economy, you got positive growth rates, uh, the risk premiums for stocks and bonds diverged. And, you know, it, even if you went from Greenspan to Bernanke to where we are with Powell, for the most part, you had a rule-based monetary policy, you know, the dual mandate between labor and that of whatever, whatever they wanted for, you know, low interest rates around 2%. For the markets, those were pretty much there. And of course, you have some demand side shocks, but for the most part, if you look at the world at large outside of the United States, which you do have some external factors, because again, the world has become a lot more interconnected during the era of globalization, you still had the U.S. with a very independent fiscal monetary policy relative to everybody else. That stopped in the Great Recession. 2008, you started to see lots of confluence between the United States, UK, the ECB, everybody kind of ended up being, I'm going to raise rates or lower rates and so, so forth. So with the next central bank, next major central bank, only in the EM markets and the frontier markets where, you know, a lot of those effects didn't really matter. You saw the independent physical policy. We started moving more towards the environment that would spoke up for a positive correlation even way back then. But it took monetary surprises like having to raise interest rates so rapidly in 2022. Unsustainable levels of debt, supply shocks, all of these things were kind of cooking from 2020, 2021, and then 2022. You had enough of the mix to take what was a negative correlation between stocks and bonds to a positive one. And it would not have mattered if both were trending up, but because we had a deleveraging in there, because we had a lot of unsustainable things and we had uncertainty at a very high level. And we continue to have that in a lot of different ways. This positive correlation may actually stay. And so that presents the problem, you know, if it does stay, but even as we start to diverge, if you look at the inflationary environment in which we are, inflation is going to do pretty much one of three things. Inflation is either going to continue rising or it's going to stand still or it's going to revert to other reasons, other, other places where it was. In the first two scenarios where you, inflation continues to rise, bad for stocks. 
stayed where it is, bad for stocks. Only if inflation starts to fall back, back to our baselines, do we have a good situation for equity markets. Now, bonds, you know, with sideways or at least stationary inflation, bond markets can kind of adapt and adjust. The yields can adjust, but not equity. Now, if you look at the 64 portfolio, again, it's only dealing with these two assets, which are really tied at the hip in a certain sense, because again, they're both representative of cap, cap markets. You can kind of see where the 60-40 fits, relatively speaking. And the thing that I found interesting is that I saw investment advisors as I was sitting on a panel listening to some of the reasons or rationale, everybody harping on, oh, it was a rare occurrence. Well, if we look back to 1960, and I have some numbers that go back even further than that, as you look at this distribution of returns, it does not seem to be that rare. The severity is rare. In fact, it's top three if you measure all the way back to the 1930s. What we saw in 2022 was as worse as we've seen almost since the Great Depression. Sure. But there's nothing saying that that can't happen again in a frequent enough time frame to affect the same portfolios that has already affected. So that puts even more pressure on why we should rethink this stock bond hedge relationship. Because here we had deleveraging and devaluing of equity assets hurting the 60% that's in equity, but the rapid increase in interest rates stunted the bond markets to an even higher degree. There's a lot to recover here. New money is going to be fine, but what about the portfolios again that are going to be used either in inter perpetuity or the ones that are retirement or some type, they have some type of monetary policy outlay that they have to do in the future. Again, 2022 is top three since 1930. That's what, 93 years. You can't dismiss it as a one-off or a rare occurrence because if you look at this data, if I present this data in another way, there looks to be some sort of periodicity to it. This data could be periodic and given the fact that we can ebb and flow in the cyclical nature of the economic cycle and the business cycle, the chances are that in the future, we will cycle back towards something that is enough similar to it to create the same situation. It could be worse, but you can't dismiss it because by dismissing it, you don't come up with a future solution. And in fact, given the interconnectedness of telecommunications now, the markets themselves, even though globalization seems to be getting less important now and more, I guess you say, more localized uh, trade and stuff is being emphasized, the speed at which information travels now, the speed at which markets themselves move, lends me to think that in the future, the severity of the drawdowns in the market, the severity of the dynamism and uncertainty that can be exhibited in the markets will probably be higher than it is right now, higher in the future than it is right now. It's just like the amount of money. If you look at the total asset loss, it's higher now, not on a relative term, but in absolute terms, it's higher now than it was in the Great Recession 
or the great financial crisis or the great depression. It's just, there's more money in the system. There's more things to move around. If you look at it, like in terms of like a molecular equilibrium of sorts. Speaking of which, one of the other data points that points to this, the true winner, and I mentioned this in the very first section, the true winner, one of the true winners in 2022 was volatility. It was higher on average than it has been top five in the last 40 years. There was a combination of macro factors, internal, external, whatever you want to look to it that contributed to it, but it happened. And investors have to adjust. And I see no good way of adjusting just by saying, oh, well, let's ride it out with a 60-40. I'm not saying you have to dump your stocks or your bonds, but I'm saying you have to augment this. It does not make sense that if volatility remains persistent, and looking again at this data from 40 years back, there seems to either be a period to it, again, the same period, or given the factors of technology and the integration of all things that contribute to financial information being spread, volatility may be higher in the future. If it's not, we have nothing to worry about, but you don't plan for that scenario. You plan for what is the worst case scenario and then what's beyond that. The other winners, and this gets more to a solution base, passive investors don't want to hear this, but passive investors does not always imply the best investors in wealth. What I've found in looking back, not only in our years, not only in just this epoch, but all the epochs, there tends to be the best investors have a more comprehensive approach than just being passive. In fact, the best, and again, among the best winners in 2022, trading firms. Trading has not been popular for the last decade. I know because I've existed as a professional trader during this period. In the low volatility of the equity market rise in the last 10 to 15 years, a lot of us got our bus kicked. A lot of the firms are not here anymore. But as I'm posting up here, Trafigura posts record profits. Look at 2022 versus the rest of their back to 2015. 2015 to 2020 looks pretty stable, but you can see as volatility in the market rose, these guys, and I'm sure girls, Trafigura traded their butts off and it produced staggering profits. They were not alone. AQR was reeling a few years ago. Why? The volatility was low. They were having problems with a lot of their funds, but now here they come with a record year. Why? Because what makes trading is volatility, uncertainty. It's a tool. Trading can be a tool. It should not be an entirety of a portfolio, as a lot of retail investors probably found out this year. But it is another tool. It's another strategy that augments, that can hedge that has a lot of utility moving forward. And I think with the core foundation of a lot of investing in the last 20 years, having moved heavily towards passive investing. In fact, I saw another data point saying that passive investor investing actually started to overtake the active funds for the first time ever. It stands to reason in an equilibrium system like the financial markets, 
that as passive starts to become the dominant thing, the thing that actually produces alpha would be trading, an active strategy. And there's lots of different ways to do trading. I'm sure AQR strategies are way different than Trafigura strategies. But what you can see is with them, my firm, with lots of other firms, as we head into more uncertain terms, trading will show its mettle. And it, along with a few other things, to me, stands out as a viable option for at least the professional portfolios, but also for those who can access managers for managed account situations or hedge funds. Speaking of AQR, I looked at a 2021 paper. Again, this is during their struggle period where they were talking about the outlook of persistent inflation. They saw it coming. And of course they did. AQR is a quant fund for the most part. And they also have enough history to understand these things that we're talking about now, which is when you're looking at the different asset classes, they break them down into equities and 60-40, again, your capital markets, then your bonds and commodities. And then they break it again into the strategic parts where you can't say that a macro style hedge fund is, you know, just an, an asset. It is, or an absolute return managed account program. It's an asset. It can be treated as an asset, but it is a strategy that harnesses some of the utility of being in certain economic environments. It has its weaknesses. I just told you with equities way up, money's cheap and volatility low trend following, following global macro strategies, all those sort of things are going to be harmed and equities are going to benefit. But as you can see from this chart, in an environment where we are now, where you have more uncertainty, equities in the 60-40 by extension can be harmed by both upside surprises and downside surprises. We saw that in 2022. But bonds, bonds can be hurt by downside surprises, of course. But bonds and commodity markets, in which a lot of these trend-following and global macro strategies play, there's a linearity, which is good because that allows for logical discourse of what to do next. If you have upside shocks or surprises or induction of risk to the upside, bonds and commodities, and as they also call, I, meant, I forgot these, break-even strategies like tips. They show linearity. Upside, you can capture the upside. Downside, it's hurt. it can be hurt linearly. If you employ a trend following or macro momentum-based strategy or some type of other strategy that sources this sort of volatility, it can provide outsized returns and also a sense of protection to a passive or otherwise equity-exposed portfolio. It's really simple. You can benefit in both directions by being active. And being active, you can be active in the stock markets if you want to, or you can take these markets that are typically cyclical, like commodities. A lot of futures markets, they tend to be cyclical for a reason. This is why 
Trafigura, AQR, start naming some of the big names in the hedge fund space. This is why they trade in those spaces. Now, taking this turn just a little bit more, the standout winner, and I wanted to bring this out, was college endowments. As the markets fell apart in 2022, I saw the creme de la creme of the college endowment world in the United States, and I'm showing them here at the top 19. I don't know why I didn't include the, the last one, but the top 19. How is it possible that these college endowments act out gains across their portfolios in a year in which most investors lost? It's easy. It takes it back to what we were talking about in the beginning. True diversification is diversification across different asset classes, but also, like the trading firms, different types of strategies. Tulane was the top of the top this year. It was only 6.2%, but if you look at the alpha over the S&P or any other benchmark, they probably killed it. How did they do it? They invested in real estate, energy, natural resources, and private credit. Kansas State, which of this top 19 is the smallest. They don't quite have a billion. Now, to some other schools, that would be a lot of money to have in, you know, a lot, a lot of schools that I actually deal with. They would consider that to be a lot of money. I, too, consider that to be a lot of money, and it's also considered to be a goal. But Kansas State University showed their mettle by investing in commodities, real estate, treasury infl inflation-protected securities, and, of course, hedge funds. The university endowments in the United States that were successful, diversified by asset class and by strategy. And even if we look at, you know, again, the largest of its sort, Harvard University scraping the bottom here. The reason why I scraping the bottom here is because they lost 1.8%. I know many people who would have loved to only lose. I have clients that would have loved to have lost 1.8% this year. But again, this diversification is not some sort of Waldorf elite magical strategy. It's using the asset classes that we know is using strategies that now in the information age are public and can be practiced by those who want to have the skill set and by those who have the resources to commission those skill those with the skill set. This is why I wanted to have this special part of the monthly market mix to talk about the college endowments and to really look under the hood a bit because I will tell you, this top 20 did very well. There are many others that did not. The ones that followed the recipe that I'm about to show you performed well. To be fair, to be perfectly fair, though, a lot of these schools in the top 19, 20 were in private equity or private court credit, private investments. In truth, some of those investments may not have been marked to market values because they're liquid in nature. And so the losses may be forthcoming in the years to come when they actually are forced to report. But I doubt that Tulane or even Kansas State with their active investments and their alternative investments will be hindered much by that. Some of the big ones like your Harvard and your Princeton's may 
uh, I guess Michigan as well, some of the larger ones may be hampered by that or maybe covering up some losses that way. But maybe by the time, because of the diversification, when those losses come out, they may be offset by gains in other categories, which is the exact point. When you look at the endowment, what you see, again, you still see the equity in the bonds. 51% of this idealistic college endowment, so a little bit over half of it, is in some form of equity. But that breaks down from not just public equity into private equity. In fact, if you look at it under the hood, private equity is almost 20% of that. And having researched a lot of endowments, that's what I see a lot of, at least in the last 10 years or so. If you look at the Princeton's, Harvard, Yale's, a lot of the M7 schools, you will see that there was a pronounced investment in private equity and also absolute return strategies, which is what the name says. I got into trading as a professional unknowing that absolute return was going to be my path because that's honestly what we were trying to do. No matter what the economic environment, our goal was to produce some type of return commensurate to the amount of risk that we were taking in these short-term transactions in our markets of choice. That's absolute return. What it does on its own can be highly risky. If all of your money, and I learned this the hard way, if all of your money is in absolute return, you are at a high level of risk. But integrated into a diverse portfolio by strategy and asset class, like what we see here, absolute return can be a diversifier and also a driver of alpha. But so can real estate and real assets, global bond, natural resources themselves. All of the parts fit together. And in truth, for the individual investor that wants to do better, he or she can do this. For the college endowment that is not diversified like this, it is even more available to you to do so. The resources at your disposal are there. It's just that the adoption of the strategy and the policies and the mindset has to be there as well. We talked about this before. More Americans are interested in alternatives than probably has been in who knows when. This is a time where the collective mindset is actually on the right path, but being able to understand that it is the collective, what we see here, not the concentrated risk, which is what's going about with the naive investment in all crypto or all stocks or all tech or whatever it is, all currencies. A carefully thought out model, which is suitable for both the individual investor and the institutional or endowment or nonprofit or whatever the entity is, is the path forward. Alternatives are very useful. They carry very unusual risks sometimes as well. A lot of the alternatives we've talked about are illiquid, but not all. So taking the illiquidity in the factor, taking what parts can be liquid, taking how much is needed in terms of payout, a payment policy of how much of the money you need to spend at some date in the future. All of these things, along with financial professionals like advisors, investment advisors, trading advisors, tax advisors can create the type of 
portfolios that not only make up for the shock and awe that happened in 2022, but can actually learn how to source this in the future. This is what my highest aim for those that are listening, whether you're Blacks Academy, whether you're my clients, or again, just curious about this and have made it to this part of the monthly market mix. This is my highest level of achievement to get us to the mindset that this is what we should actionably be looking for to do in this year onward. And this goes back again, rebuild your portfolios. Look for those areas where to bolster cash so that you have it in reserve for the uncertainty. For institutions, this is a no-brainer. But the investing goes, I've introduced a lot of markets to the listening audience. We can refine those by, again, listening to more of the content that we have at Blacks Academy. I have now 18 years knee-deep in the world of finance. I love it to death, if you cannot tell, and I will love it for another 18 years if God so sees fit. Right now, investing value and quality makes sense. Being more particular, being more of a, dare I say, stock picker, but more so an asset picker or theme picker instead. And I say that with alternatives in mind because it's not about stock picking. It's about being nuanced. It's about being almost artful, if you will, in the development of your portfolios. And some people may say, I don't have time for that thing. But my thing is you have time to be behind. Then you have time to actually change your mindset, unlearn a few things, just like we learned about the 60-40. There's tons of other things that we can unlearn. Unlearning these things opens the door to more information. What else did I miss? It's in the world of alternatives. Now, in terms of where to actually go in terms of a strategy, I think it's pretty simple. If you're in the buy and hold business, you need to find relative value whenever you're looking for your equities. What I mean by relative value, if you're looking in the tech sector, find the absolute best. Find the companies that are both dominant and, dis and disruptive, even in this environment of uncertainty. It's the big names that you know that haven't slumped off 60%. Or maybe the ones that have, but have some intrinsic value that's built in into the future. Otherwise, the thing I've been harping on for years now, because it's working, absolute return. If you're going to be in, in an environment in which uncertainty rules or uncertainty is likely to rule, absolute return and the people who have the skill set to do that are among your best bets for return. Outside of that, you can do some break-even strategies, some cheap hedges. Also, if you do have the money for it, I would recommend commodity specialists, but Traffic Europe, um, they're proprietary firms. You can't really source them. AQR is pretty expensive. They're among the best in the business. You're going to have to pull out some money, but there are others. You just have to go look and open up to that world of managed account, separate accounts, hedge funds, fund of fund structures, but also be mindful of the metrics in which they're gauged against. Because I can tell you, you can't look vis-a-vis -vis the mutual fund 
and a hedge fund and make a good decision. Also, as I call it, sourcing volatility. Again, this goes into the active strategies. Some things that are risky can be very, very destructive, are very, very destructive, especially if you look for them. But there are a lot of people that know how to play volatility, either directly or indirectly. If you can source that, if you can look for that opportunity to pop and do it at a size that does not threaten your entire portfolio if things go wrong, you can source volatility and add more alpha to your portfolio. And in thinking about holistically the asset classes and business se sectors that I think are going to be sexy in 2023, again, commodities, basic materials, credit markets, I think. I think between banks and whatever interest rates are going to do here in the United States and abroad, you may start to see some differentiation, may start to see some divergence in policies that can actually be very constructive to uh, credit market opportunities. Real estate, I'm optim optimistic about real estate reverting a bit and maybe providing some op opportunities. But again, it's it's been a, typically an inflation hedge in these types of environments. The same thing for foreign equity too. Just like we noted, interestingly enough, in the Eurozone, some of the European markets are turning up. If technically they work out, and I look at some of the other quantitative fashions, I think foreign equity markets, some of them, could be very beneficial basis for your equity money. And in terms of business se sectors, all you had to do was look at 2022. AI was one of the forefront interesting things. Cybersecurity, to me, given the work from home or work from some remote location paradigm is seen to be stuck. I think it's a no-brainer. I've already mentioned basic materials, but also I think shipping lanes are something to be uh, considered. We still have a lot of geopolitical tensions. I did not talk about China, Taiwan. Even if Ukraine and Russia normalize in the mind of investors, there are so many other regions that have tensions. I think new trading routes, old trading routes, sanctions, tariffs, all these things are going to have some negotiation or renegotiation, that lends to uncertainty, that lends to opportunity and something that we can look at. The other last thing, though, is weather. We saw a lot of, quote unquote, unforeseen things, and a lot of the bigger agencies are now starting to do things in lines of making things greener and making things more sustainable. Be that as it may, short-term perturbations in the weather, depending on different regions, can be sourced as opportunities. Take that along with the strategies, blend it in. We'll talk more about this at Blacks Academy, but this to me is a roadmap going forward to 2023 and beyond. It's just the beginning. Probably have some more to build on this as more information comes in in the next, next monthly market mixes. I'm hoping that this technical section helps somebody in a way that the other two sections kind of gloss over. If not, just let me know. Otherwise, thank you for your time and attention, and I look to hearing from you all. Thank you. For more information about our trading and investing courses, visit www.blacks.academy. That's B-L-A-X-E dot academy.